Rick Riordan has written a young adult, young adult series of books called, um, what are they called, uh, Percy Jackson and something along those lines. I, I don't know if it was a different name, but Percy Jackson, it's all about Percy Jackson, this demigod, son of Poseidon. It's a series that basically takes the gods and goddesses of ancient Greece and imagines what they'd be like if they were a part of, well, one, if they were real, but two, if they were a part of the 21st century. And so Disney has recently made a series, TV series out of it, and we watched it, uh, or watching it as a family without Luke, but as a family. And in it, I think it, it, it's very helpful. It kind of portrays for a modern audience what the Greek and uh, Roman gods were like, maybe in a little bit of a sanitized way, thankfully. Uh, but it shows that they're, they're not any different than people. Not any different than humans. They are not morally superior in any way. And nothing makes that clearer than all the demigods running around. All these beings who are actually supposed to be half human and half divine. They're the product of these illicit relationships between the gods and goddesses and humans. They are not morally superior beings. So we're watching in one of these episodes, Percy mentions how bad of an example really the gods are. He's talking to his other demigod friend, Annabeth, and he's talking about how these gods want you to think. He says that, you know, they're, it doesn't make sense what they want you to think. How you have to burn an offering just to get his, his divine dad's attention. How he has to do something heroic just to get his dad to admit that he's his father. And he says, it isn't supposed to work that way. People who are close to you aren't supposed to treat you that way. And then Annabeth explains to him what happened to her from her human family. She talks about the mistreatment she experienced, and so she then says in response, it isn't just the gods who think that way. It's everybody. We're all bad people. (laughs) Everybody's the same. Gods are just like the humans. And that is exactly what you find if you read Greek mythology. I haven't read a lot of it, but they're just like humans, other humans. As one modern writer suggested, that's what made these gods easier to believe. He says, the more the gods become like men, the easier it is for men to believe the gods. When both have only human appetites, then rogues may worship rogues. I think we feel safer when what we worship is just like us, because then you know what to expect. Know what's coming, because you know what you're like. Fact is, Voltaire was right when he said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. And, And don't think that's just pagans doing that. It's not just non-Christians doing that. We spend quite a bit of brain power trying to figure out how we can fit God into our own little boxes. How we can try to tame the version of God found in the Bible. We prefer a God whose ways are like our ways. Whose thoughts are like our thoughts. We prefer a God whose sense of justice and fairness is the same as ours. We prefer a God who treats us as equals, who submits to our understanding of right and wrong. So when Christians come to a difficult story like the one that I read this morning, we can do one of two things, really. We can either skip it or try to explain how it really isn't what it sounds like it is. We're just trying to fit God into our box. We're making him in our own image. But what the Bible keeps doing over and over again, if you read it through, keeps showing us that God has escaped our box, that he, he is not like us, that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, his, heart, his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. So we come to yet another passage in the Bible that no pastor would choose to preach on in their right mind. But because I do not trust myself to pass on to our church what God wants us to know by my own selective choices, I just go through books. And we come to this this passage here that challenges our version of God. At least the the God we want to find in the Bible. But this is part of Scripture that Paul says is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So last week we saw these obstacles that Moses imagined would keep him from serving God. This week we're going to see the God of obstacles. 
The obstacles that Moses imagined would keep him from serving him ended up not being real obstacles. But there were obstacles that he didn't even know about. There were obstacles that God shows in these verses he's at work through. So these obstacles that we see, they don't catch him off guard. When, when actual, genuine obstacles arise, God has a reason for them. And that's what we see in this passage. So the Lord shows Moses this here in Exodus 4 so that he can begin to teach Moses and then Israel through Moses what he's really like, that he's not like the gods that were invented first at Babel. He's a different God. And what we see in this passage really are four aspects of the true God. What he's really like, he's a small beginner, a sovereign father, an undomesticated ruler, and a promise keeper. And what that does is it helps us understand why, why we should trust and obey him, why we should love and serve him, why we should fear and submit to him, and why we should believe and worship him. So you can turn to Exodus 4 in your Bible. It's on page 44. In the Bible there in the pew, you turn to Exodus 4, and we're, we're going to begin in verse 18, where we see, first of all, that God is a small beginner. Now, when you know that God is an almighty creator, that he sustains the universe right now, you would expect that if he's going to intercede, if he's going to act in history, it's going to be decisive, it's going to be immediate. God repeatedly chooses to use humans to work out his plan. And that's a much slower process. So after Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, the text says in verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. This, this verse is a, a very normal interchange in the ancient Near East. This is not much to be surprised by. In fact, what's so remarkable about the passage is what's unremarkable, how unremarkable it is. I mean, when you compare this to Jacob's experience, when he's leaving his father-in-law, this is very just run-of-the-mill. He goes to his father-in-law to seek his blessing to leave, and he gets a simple go in peace. This is what anybody in Moses' shoes at the time would have done. He, he's submitting to God's call, but he does need to go and talk to his father-in-law, who's not just a father-in-law. In the ancient Near East, this is the, the person who's in charge of the extended family. So he wants to be able to leave Jethro in good standing. And thankfully, Jethro is no Laban. So when Moses really asks for his blessing to leave, that's what Jethro gives. He just says, go in peace. And I don't think Moses is really trying to pull one over on on Jethro and not telling him everything, I think it's kind of a misunderstanding or a, a, a wrong assumption to think that we have to tell everyone everything that we know if it doesn't relate to them. And I think that Moses is using a kind of idiom here to just talk about how he wants to go and see his family, which is true and is all that Jethro needed to know. And we should also realize that maybe even more than an idiom, Moses is still learning about this God. And so maybe he really does want to see if anybody survived. That could be a, just a genuine motive. But the Lord then comes and does what he often does. It, it kind of sounds redundant at times to us, but he reassures Moses. He says basically the, the same thing, but then he adds a little bit more to it. Tells him a little bit more about what he's, what he's going to be doing. He tells him, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now, Moses evidently is concerned. I mean, last time he was in Egypt, he was a wanted man. So God reassures him here. And Moses' response to that is what we should respond. He trusts the Lord, he obeys. And so verse 20 says, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Text never told us that he had a second son, Eliezer. He's going to tell us about Eliezer in chapter 18. Only reason why he seems to have told us about Gershom was because of what his name 
meant and or what it, why he chose the name. So it was telling us about his thinking. So it's very normal for the text to just kind of overlook some of those key details. It's telling us what we need to know, when we need to know it. And it's not saying that these sons are so little that they can both ride with their mom. Um, we don't have to make that assumption. Either they're taking turns on one donkey, or that word donkey there can actually be used like cattle. It could be used as a collective, so it could be more than one donkey. The point, though, is he's not a rich guy. As he leaves Midian, he's not leaving like Abraham. He's not leaving like Jacob. At best, this is just a wife and two sons and a few donkeys, maybe. He's going back. This is not something that looks very amazing or significant. He's just an ordinary family of meager means, This is a very small beginning for the Exodus. But it is a beginning. That's what's happening. As we read these verses, the beginning of the Exodus is happening. It's very small. But we know it's the beginning of the Exodus because he goes with this staff. That last detail he mentions. Staff that's called the staff of God because of how God has used it and how he's going to use it. So we can often imagine when we hear about the staff of God, we can with our modern fairy tales like Harry Potter, we can imagine this is like a magic wand that, that Moses is going to now wield to his own discretion. That's not the way this works. That's not how Moses viewed it. This is just his ordinary staff. But it does point, it's really symbolic of the fact that God is going to be able to do amazing three things through something very ordinary, something very run-of-the-mill. We have a, a different symbol for our salvation. This was really, that staff was really a symbol of their salvation. Our, our symbol is a little different. Philip, Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, it is tempting to think of God's staff as a magic wand or to wish that we could have one ourselves, but the, what the staff represents is available to us. The staff was a visible sign of God's saving power. And now God's saving power comes through the cross. When, when we read about our salvation, it is not what you would expect. That we would be saved through someone being crucified. Any, anybody who's empirically inclined would look at that and say, that, that's, that's not how it would work, right? If, if Jesus really was crucified, he is no God. Because that's not what God would do. If God would, would do something big. He'd have a big entrance. He wouldn't let some puny humans kill him and yet the bible repeatedly shows us this god who has these small and strange beginnings to his plan it just never stays small starts small jesus referred to it as a mustard seed this kingdom but then it gets very big and very big things are going to happen going to happen here in exodus They are happening here with us as well. So in these small kind of inconspicuous beginnings, we're called the same as Moses. We're called to listen to what God has said, to trust him, and to obey, even as we wait for the big things to come. When Christ returns, it's going to be big. But for now, we are, like Moses, just taking these steps. We're trusting God. We're obeying him. So God is a small beginner. The second aspect of God that we see in this passage is found at the beginning of verse 21. God is a sovereign father. At some point on this journey, the Lord speaks to Moses. And again, he tells him a little bit more about his mission. He told him in Exodus 3.10 that he was going to send him to Pharaoh. He was going to bring out his people through Moses as he confronts Pharaoh. But the only instructions he has up at this point is to go and talk to the elders, the leaders of Israel. And so right now he kind of gives an overview of his instructions for Pharaoh. First of all, he draws attention to these miracles that Moses is going to do. And it's, it's a different word than the, the word signs that we saw last week. This word, that, that word sign is used for the changing of the staff into a serpent and then back again and then changing Moses' hand into a leprous and hand and then back to well. But this word, it's, it, like the word sign, it's used to say that that these miracles are used to convey something, but the word sign can be very positive. This is an ominous idea. 
what, what's being conveyed by these miracles that God talks about, they're a little bit more off-putting. And so Moses is told that he's to do all these miracles, basically. To carry out these miracles that God has planned. So again, it's not like he's using a magic wand. Moses is to do exactly what God has planned with these miracles. But there is a catch. And it's the kind of catch that makes us very uncomfortable. So Moses is supposed to do these amazing things. But then at the end of verse 21, the Lord says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So if you're reading that, that's enough to do a double take. You know, I can imagine Moses saying, wait, okay, so I'm supposed to do these these ominous, miraculous things that, in theory, are supposed to pressure Pharaoh into letting your people go, but you're going to harden him so that he doesn't do that. This is where God is stepping out of his box. Now, the wording here is traditionally translated harden. There's actually three different Hebrew words used throughout these chapters in Exodus but they're all translated harden. And so it's just the, the traditional way we've, we've translated it. It's not that it's completely out of place, but I think that the word here, this particular word, helps us clarify what's going on. This Hebrew word could be translated make strong or strengthen. And, and Desmond Alexander, he, he was very helpful in trying to break this down to, to look at what's really going on. And he points out the way that the word heart, first of all, is used. The word heart is used to describe the inner person, right? All of the inner person, though. Our thoughts, our thinking, our feeling, our desiring, our choosing. And so another way to think about this terminology is that God is going to strengthen Pharaoh's resolve. That's what he's doing. That's what he tells him he's going to do. So these miracles really could make Pharaoh lose his resolve. They could make him cave. Make him do something he doesn't really want to do. And what the Lord is saying, he's, he's promising to strengthen Pharaoh's will so that he can do what he really wants to do. So that he won't cave to the pressure that, that the Lord's doing. So, same idea is when it actually says that the Lord hardened his heart. He's crystallizing his will. Stealing him against what the Lord is going to do in terms of pressuring him. Now, when we respond to this, I think our natural response is, is this okay? You know, should, should God be allowed to do this? I mean, doesn't this infringe on our inalienable right to free will? This is, this is problematic. Short answer is, God is the basis for morality. So, questions about whether God is right to do something. It's really like asking, is what's right to do right? Only way for us to evaluate what a right is is what God is like and who he is and, and what he does. So what God says is right. What God does is right. That's how we know what right is. He's the definition. I realize though, some people would look at this and they'd say, well, I don't like it. I don't, I don't believe it. No, if when compared with my own ideas about what is right that I got from somewhere, this is wrong, what God's doing. It's not, he's not allowed to do this. So I would say as we look at this, what would be right for God to do? Is the only right thing for God to do to pressure a morally despicable man until he does something against his own will? Is that the only right thing for God to do? And why is it, is it wrong for God to strengthen someone so that they can resist his pressure, so that they can actually be free to do what they want to do? Is that wrong for God to do? What God's doing is really just stabilizing Pharaoh's freedom to do as he pleases. That's what this hardening, that's what this strengthening is doing. Seems like God can't win for losing when it comes to people and what, what we think about free will because we don't like whatever he does. This is uncomfortable. God's going to explain why he does this. 
God is revealing himself to Israel. He's revealing himself to the world. He is correcting all these idolatrous ideas that both his people and the world have about God and the gods. So this confrontation with this despicable despot, it's the perfect opportunity for God to reveal himself, to show who he really is, to display his glory. But it's also the means by which he is revealing our salvation. The only way for him to to explain to us what our salvation is like is for him to have this confrontation with Pharaoh. That ends up implicating his firstborn son. So God's strengthening Pharaoh's heart is so that he can reach this end, so that he can reveal what our salvation is. But understand, at no point is God forcing Pharaoh to do something against his own will. If anything, he's protecting from that. So even though Pharaoh will will absolutely regret his choice, it is fully his choice to refuse the Lord, even at the cost of his own son. Pharaoh is still entirely responsible for his actions. Now, Pharaoh, he's thought to be this divine son himself. He's he's supposed to have a divine heritage. So what we're seeing here is really these two divine fathers with their respective firstborn sons. And their sons are on the line. That's That's what the Lord's revealing to Moses here. So in his pride, Pharaoh is basically claiming sovereignty over both sons. That's what he's doing. He's saying that he has the ability, on the one hand, to protect his own son. So when confronted with this idea that the Lord could actually take his son's life, he's confident that he can protect his own son. He's also confident that he is in charge of the Lord's son. That his his son needs to serve him. And that's what is going to end up costing him his own son. Now, in both of these cases, you have these sons that are kind of the sons of of divine beings, right? I mean, Pharaoh's is not real and genuine, but Israel's is. Son of a divine being. That's really what these demigods are. The whole premise of a demigod. Gods and goddesses for parents. And and again, in that series, Percy Jackson, Percy's demigod friend, Annabeth, She comes to the defense of the gods at one point. She says, at least with the gods, you know the rules. Show them respect, and they'll be in your corner no matter what. She actually says that she's in the doghouse at the time with her mom because she did something disrespectful. Athena is not very happy with her. But that's what's really crazy about this relationship that we have with God. The sonship, the basis for our sonship. It's not because we respected him. That he has this relationship with us. So why does God adopt Israel to be his firstborn son? Was it because of their respect for him? Was it because of their moral purity? Was it because of anything good in them? Is that why he adopted them? It was based on his promises to the forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even that was initiated when he took Abraham out of his idolatrous family in Mesopotamia. There is nothing about this that's deserved. This is entirely a work of God's grace. So he makes Israel his son by grace, by undeserved kindness. This was all part of his plan to make this family into a nation who is his people, and he is their God. So, God is their father, but he's also a sovereign father. The language here in Exodus, it talks about a, this adoption kind of language where they are his sons, but it also talks about the transfer of ownership. It continues to talk about Israel as they have been serving Pharaoh, and now the Lord wants them to serve him. That's the terminology of, of service, of slavery. So Yahweh is both Lord and Father just like we see in Romans. So he is to be both loved and served. 
This is an amazing, gracious adoption. When he adopts Israel, when he rescues Israel, the response is obviously they, they should love him. But he's also Lord. He's also sovereign over them. And the natural response to that is to serve him. They're told in Deuteronomy to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. They're also told to serve the Lord their God with their whole heart and soul. Now, this is, this is true of us too. We, we've been through Romans. We've seen the same things that are being described here. In Romans 9, 4, Moses, or Paul, we haven't gotten to Romans 9, 4, but in, in chapter 9, verse 4, Paul refers to Israel becoming sons as adoption. But Old Testament also has other adoptions by the, by the Lord. He adopted David. This is what he said in, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, referring to David and his sons. The Lord said, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And then Psalm 89 comments on that relationship and even refers to, the, uh, to David and his sons as the firstborn. So you have the same terminology. Israel is my firstborn. And then the Lord says, David and his sons are my firstborn, which leads to the Messiah, who is God's firstborn. Obviously, in a in a more significant way, but in Hebrews, it specifically refers to Jesus as the firstborn. So you could see this development happening. Israel is the firstborn, then David and his sons are the firstborn, and then the Messiah is the firstborn. And in Romans eight twenty nine, Paul points out that God's choice for Israel to be his firstborn, it was intended to to lead somewhere. It was intended to lead to Jesus, the Messiah, who would be the firstborn among many brothers. We're not actually firstborn. Christians aren't, but we are sons and daughters of God by our connection to the firstborn son. He's the firstborn among many brothers. So in Galatians 3.26, Paul says, in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. We could translate that sons and daughters of God through faith. So this has always been the plan. Israel is the undeserved benefactors of this adoption. They, they should never have been adopted as firstborn sons, but God did that to point forward to what he was going to do in Christ. So he initiates this plan. He makes Israel the firstborn son, and then he makes David his firstborn son. You guys realize you can't have more than one firstborn son. He makes David's sons his firstborn son. Then the Messiah is the firstborn son. It's all pointing forward to Jesus. So in Romans, Paul has this language of adoption, but he also has the language of service. God is our Father, and He is our Lord and Master. So in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul says that believers were set free from sin and made slaves to righteousness and to God. And then in chapter 8, he says we're adopted. Both are true. He's our Lord and he is our Father. So our response needs to be the same. We should love and serve God. His ways are higher than our ways. I mean, we should never have been made his sons. We're rebels. We're like Pharaoh. If you want to see somebody in the story that, that is like us, it's Pharaoh. But instead of handing us over to ourselves, which is really what he does with Pharaoh, he shows us mercy. Paul uses this very story in Romans 9 to, to say how the Lord can show mercy to whomever he chooses. And he's chosen to show us mercy. So the only difference between us and Pharaoh is God's grace. You see pharaohs in our world today. You see people that are rebellious against God. We, we don't look down on them. We're no better. Israel is going to help us see that in the wilderness. We're no better. We're rebels. But when we recognize this amazing love that God has shown us, this amazing grace in making us his sons and daughters, we we should respond with love. We should love him with our whole heart, soul, and strength. We know we don't deserve it. 
And when we also realize that God is the almighty creator who's rescued us from our slavery to sin, that we now, we should serve him with our whole heart, soul, and strength. We should love and serve our sovereign father. He's a small beginner, a sovereign father. Third, we see that he's an undomesticated ruler. The way C.S. Lewis would say that, he's, a, he's not a tame lion. How many of you would let a wolf or a cougar into your home? You know, raise your hand. How many would adopt a wolf, full-grown wolf, full-grown cougar in, into your, your family? Raise your hand. We're going to take notes. We'll be turning you in. I mean, that's crazy. We wouldn't do that because we, we prefer domesticated creatures, if, if any, in our homes. And, and actually, that makes sense, right? It makes sense that because God has given us dominion over the creatures. It is not wrong for us to domesticate these animals. But there is something very wrong about domesticating God. We domesticate God when we try to make sure that he does what we want him to do. That's what we do with our animals, right? Make sure that they do what we want them to do. And we can do that with God. When we want to, to basically corral those wild features like we do with our, our pets. We want to make sure that God fits into our thinking, our lifestyle. So if you see anything in the Bible that seems a little crazy, again, what I said before, we either ignore it or we master it. More conservative route is to kind of do the ostrich thing. We stick our heads in the sand, we try to ignore it. More liberal route is to say, this is just one, again, one of those places in the Bible that shows it's just a fallible human written thing. It's, it's, it's wrong. There's a more conservative option in between the two. Still trying to master it. I think it's done by well-meaning people who basically try to explain away the text. So we're going to take any of the details we can find in this passage to make it say what it doesn't look like it's saying. That's what we try to do to domesticate God. This looks like it's saying something crazy. I need to fix that. And so we fix it. And the story ends up looking nothing like the story that we read. But what should we expect of a God who says his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts? We should expect that there are going to be things that he does that we don't understand, that aren't intuitive for us because his ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We should expect God to do things that we're not comfortable with. It seems strange to us. And so when these strange things happen in the Bible, we need to try our best to understand why they're there. God is revealing this for a particular reason. We want to understand that. So in this passage, the Lord has just sent Moses to Egypt, apparently only to try and kill him now. Does that make sense? It doesn't make immediate sense. It says in verse 24, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to kill him or put him to death. Who's the him? There are some scholars who, who think the pronouns are, are proleptic. They're pointing to the son that's mentioned later, but we're reading this all together in context. The most obvious antecedent for that pronoun is Moses. So at this lodging place along the way to Egypt, they took a break, and at this stop it says the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. The Lord had just reassured Moses, hey, all those people that sought to put you to death in Egypt, they're dead, and now he's the one seeking to put him to death. He's the threat. Now, we should be very clear that if God wanted to kill Moses, he'd be dead. So when it says that he sought to do this, it's not referring to some attempt that God was trying to do and was unsuccessful with. It's talking about his intentions. And we're not told how Zipporah, Moses' wife, knew that the Lord was there, how she knew he was seeking to kill him. We don't even know how she knew what the cause was. But based on verse 26, she does know what the problem is. Doesn't mention that both the sons need circumcision. Never mentions that Moses is circumcised afterward, after this. And based on what it says here and in chapter 12, we have every reason to believe Moses is circumcised and evidently one of his sons is circumcised, but the other isn't. We don't know why. We don't even know if it's the older or younger son. 
All we know is one of them was not circumcised and that it was a very big problem. And once again, you have this brave, assertive woman rescuing Moses, saving his life. This is a constant theme in Moses' life. Zipporah, she jumps into action. She takes a flint knife. She performs a circumcision. And then verse 25, there's a lot of interpretation that goes into these verses. Again, people are trying to make sense out of these things. And so they, they tend to add a little bit to what the text says in the Hebrew. It doesn't say that she touched his feet with anything. It just says she touched his feet. Assuming it's Moses. And that it really is feet. It does mention blood though. And then it it talks about her touching his feet in connection seemingly with this blood. So it seems like there's a connection there. She takes her now bloody hands. She bows down and touches him at his feet. And she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then the result in verse 26 is the Lord left Moses alone. She did the right thing. She rescued Moses. And and it even clarifies her comment and says that what she's saying has to do with the circumcision. The act of circumcision had made Moses a bridegroom of blood to Zipporah. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, this is wild. I don't know exactly what Zipporah means when she says what she says. So we just try to take things as they come. That word bridegroom is the same exact word used in verse 18 to describe Jethro as the father-in-law. It's a word that just means that you are related to someone by marriage. So she's connecting this in some way with marriage. Maybe she's just saying that this is a bloody marriage. This is a messy marriage. This is not what I would like it to be. But she could also be making a statement about what circumcision has done. So what is circumcision for Israel? Other countries, other nations did circumcise their males. What Israel did, the reason why they circumcised their, first, their sons was to mark out those sons as members of God's covenant, his covenant people, those who would benefit from God's covenant promises. So at the end of the Exodus, as, as things are, are ending there in chapter 12, The Lord's going to make a very big deal out of circumcision. He's going to say how very, very important it is that these children are marked out as members of the covenant in order to keep the Passover. And it just so happens that the Passover is also the other place where this word translated touching occurs. It's used when they're told to touch the blood to the doorposts. So you do almost have this this precursor to the Passover. It's, it's different, it's strange, but blood is being touched to Moses just like blood will be touched to the doorposts. And again, it demonstrates, just as it will with that final plague, that God has a right over our lives and that it is very important to obey him. So in Genesis 17, the Lord told Abraham to circumcise his sons. He said that they need to circumcise their sons and that anyone who doesn't is cut off from the people, cut off from these covenant promises. And Moses is now heading back to Egypt in order to be used of God to keep his covenant promises. He's keeping his covenant promises and yet Moses has now set his son outside of the covenant promises. He's disobeyed. So, Even as the Lord sends him off, he needs to address Moses' disobedience. Zipporah really is exemplary in this. She fears the Lord. And she submits to him. Now we have trouble with this idea of the fear of the Lord. We assume it's it's incongruous with love. You cannot love and fear. We take Passages like John and say, that's an Old Testament idea. Perfect love casts out fear. Well, John has his point about not fearing condemnation. That's not what we fear. But 1 Peter says that we fear the Lord. But that's not just an Old Testament idea. It's not the fear of condemnation, but it's the acknowledgement of God's awesome and holy presence. 
and it leads to action. So the fear of the Lord is the basis for obedience. We do that because we believe God is here. He is present, and he is not someone to mess around with. He is not a tame lion. He is holy. And our recognition of his holiness and that response that that obeys him, that's what the fear of the Lord is all about. So instead of trying to get God to submit to our ideas about what he should be like, we submit to him. He is an undomesticated God. Finally, we see in verse 27 that God is a promise keeper. He had told Moses and Aaron, or he had told Moses that that he was going to send Aaron. He told him that he was going to be basically Moses' prophet. He told him that the the elders were going to believe him when he went and talked to them. So what we see in these final five verses are God keeping his promises. So verse 27 picks up the story that mentioned Aaron. It's not necessarily going in exact chronological order. This is now resuming that whole point that God was making. When he told Moses at the burning bush that Aaron was on his way, now we know why he was on his way. The Lord had told Aaron to come and meet with his brother. And, and evidently, you can, you can learn from this that Aaron was able to maintain a relationship with his brother while they were in Egypt. Even though Moses is in Pharaoh's household, Aaron and Moses know each other. They were able to keep in contact. And so now Aaron is called by the Lord to go and see his brother and to be his brother's prophet, really, just as Moses was called to be the Lord's prophet. And that seems to be why they have this encounter on the mountain of God. It's like Aaron is having his own burning bush experience, only it's mediated through Moses, which is exactly what's going to keep happening. He's going to keep experiencing God's word through Moses. So it says in verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then they both obey. Verse 29 says, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Notice in verse 30, Aaron is functioning as Moses' prophet. He speaks the words of the Lord that Moses has given him. And then he does the signs. And you could tell God kept his promise also to be with their mouth. Because look at the results in verse 31. It says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, We have plenty of reasons, too, to believe God. We have plenty of ways that God has kept his promises. So the response that we should have is the same as these elders. We should believe and we should worship. And I think that's what they they point us to. They were pointing Israel to the same response. Israel should, just like these elders had done, believe and worship and, and we should respond the same way. Now, Israel's faith doesn't prove to be very strong. Their worship is spotty. But at the beginning of the Exodus, they do the right thing. And the Lord draws attention to it. So again, God has visited us. That's the language of God paying attention to our situation. And doing something about it. Our plight wasn't slavery in Egypt, but it was slavery. We were slaves to our sin. We were rebels, and God rescued us from ourselves. So Moses, again, he has these signs here. What is the sign of God's visitation with us? It's the cross and the resurrection. The message that we are rescued from our sins and that God is going to save us fully, completely, The sign that that's true, the sign that we look to and believe is the fact that Jesus came, died, and rose again. Now, you could hear that message and you could say, well, I'm not a child of God. I think this is a bunch of baloney. I I don't believe this. Or you could listen to that message and in it you could hear God calling you to turn from your sin. You could hear through this message that that God has visited us, that God has sent his son, that he died and he really did rise again. You could hear in that God calling you to trust in Jesus, 
to see him as your savior, to follow him. You could recognize that the message of the Bible, it's all leading to Jesus. It's telling us that we really are sinners. And you could hear that message and you could say, I believe it. I am a sinner. I really have strayed from God. Jesus really is the only one who can make me right with God. And I believe that. That's what this text, first and foremost, calls us to, to believe. And then we can begin to do what we were made for. When we believe this truth, we can worship God. That's what salvation leads to, worshiping God. It leads to this humble acknowledgement that God is greater than you can imagine, that he is worthy of our praise. So worship really is a reflex. It's not just a performance. It's not just something that you do. It's really something that you're reacting to. It's the result of extreme admiration. It comes from awe that you, you experience when you see God the way that he really is. We're made for worship. That's why it is so easy for us to worship other things. I mean, it's, it's a reflex even when it's used inappropriately. Right? We, we can easily worship pleasure or success. We can worship relaxation. We could worship anything that we admire to the point that it brings us this, this overwhelming sense of satisfaction. We just naturally respond to it by our worship. So deep down, we know worship is not just some activity that you perform on Sundays. No, worship is a reflex. It's a response to what you view as the most important thing in your life. That's what you worship. That's how you spend your time, your money. That's what you listen to what you spend time thinking about. That's what you worship. And that flows out of a genuine faith that God is the most important thing, most important person. Now, we don't always feel that. Right? We don't always feel that, that sense of awe. We don't always feel this, in, in this, this reflex. And we acknowledge that, but we should never be satisfied when we don't feel it. So we should never just be satisfied with the performance of worship. We should never just be satisfied by saying, oh, I come to church on Sundays and I, and I do the things I'm supposed to do and that's all I need to do. We should never be satisfied with that because of what worship is. We need to long for and really truly desire this deep response that comes from knowing God as he really is. We want that. And we should be asking for the faith to see God as he is so that we can have this kind of response. We, we cannot do this just mustering up the strength on our own. We cannot create this kind of a response. God has to initiate it. He has to rescue us from ourselves. And then he has to produce this in us by his spirit. But that's what we want. That's what we're pursuing. We're never just sitting back and saying, I'm comfortable. I'm okay with the fact that I don't feel it. We are like, like Paul says in, in Philippians, we, we pursue after this. We want to know Christ. We want to worship truly. So don't settle for a tame version of God. Some God that looks a whole lot like someone we just might invent for ourselves. If your God is never unsettling, he never does anything unexpected. Your God just might be an Olympian. And they're not worth it. They're not worth your time. Our God is unexpected. He is a small beginner. So even when things don't seem as big as what you think they ought to be, you can trust him, you can obey him. He is a sovereign father. So we both love and serve him. Same time, he is an undomesticated ruler. That means that even as we love him, we also fear him. 
and we submit to him. But he's also a promise keeper. So we can believe him and we can worship him. Join me in prayer. Spirit, we know that that we cannot respond to the word that you've inspired apart from your work in us. So we acknowledge from the start that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling because you are present with us. And you are at work in us so that we want to do this and you're the one who produces it in our lives. So we humbly ask that you would do this in our lives. We look at Israel, we look at Moses, we look at the numerous bad examples and we acknowledge that but by your grace we would do the same. So we ask that you would do what you promised to do. That you would produce in us this love that we ought to have for you and for others. We ask that you would produce this humility that serves you. ask that you would bring about the faith that we need to trust you and obey you. That we would do what Paul says in Philippians there. Practicing the effects of our salvation in fear and trembling. Submitting to you. We ask that you would produce in us both the faith and the response of worship. That we would not be content with just worshiping at appointed times. But as Paul calls us to, we would worship with a living sacrifice. So we ask you to cause us to pay attention to the word that you've inspired. And enable us to put it into practice. Enable us to accept it as true. To be challenged by it. So that we see you, we see the triune God as you truly are. We tear down the idols in our hearts. We accept your sovereignty. We do not hold out any rules of what you can and cannot do. But we instead learn from you what you do actually do. We ask for your grace and your mercy. And anyone here who, who does not know Father through the Son, we ask that you, Spirit, would cause them to pay attention to the good news. They would see the truth about themselves and their need for a Savior. They would believe. Amen.